Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I was born and raised in 3HO. And I started this podcast with several intentions, and I like to read them at the beginning of every episode. I want to, number one, break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they're doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light-washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I want to remind all of you as listeners that the 
Uncomfortable Conversations podcast is open and available for your story. You're welcome to reach out to me at gn at gurunishan.com or just go to my website to the contact me section. You're also welcome to donate to the support of this podcast. There is a donate section at gurunishan.com if you'd like to make a monthly or one-time donation to support this work. Thank you for those of you that have reached out and shared how the podcast is supporting and helping you in your process of healing and awakening and seeing yourself through perhaps a different lens now that we are hearing from the experiences of <clears throat> people's pain and, and hurt that has not been spoken out loud. And even just the speaking out loud of our experiences and our stories can be very uncomfortable. And that's a part of the remembering process and the dismembering process. So I want to thank you for your courage and your courage in listening to this podcast. And thank you for your support, all of you who are listening regularly and reaching out and commenting and reviewing. So don't forget to like and review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Today, we have a guest um, by the name of Mark Bailey, and <clears throat> I'm going to read Mark Bailey's bio, but then I'm going to give a little uh, context to my connection to that gentleman that is on our podcast today, and I'm very excited about this episode today. Mark Bailey left home at a young age and lived as an artist on the fringes of society. From the ages of 15 to 18, experienced psychological manipulation and abuse from a member of 3HO while a student for Summit School for the Arts in Chisago City, Minnesota, before it shut down, before it was shut down in 1999. He settled down after a serious accident in 2006 and spent the next decade painting pictures while learning to manage two chronic illnesses. Since 2014, Mark has worked primarily as a writer. He summarizes news reports for a nonprofit information service, writes articles for the cryptocurrency industry, and maintains a blog. Mark has also published seven science fiction novels. He works from home and rarely leaves his Minneapolis neighborhood. You can learn more with Mark in his short book, um, as well as the link to his blog um, that's written in the information <clears throat> on the podcast. Um, I want to context my relationship with Mark even before we begin um, that in about in November 15th of this of 2021, I got an email uh, from Mark and um, it was in this time after the, the last recorded episode of this podcast was in um, September and I had um, really been in the swirls of dismantling identity and I think the uh, last podcast you had listened to uh, was really swirling and like dismantling identity and beginning to really see the supremacy that was just within our own, within the 3HO uh, culture as the, as the white woman supremacy uh, episode that I did. And so I was really in the swirls of dismantling my own identity. And so when I get this Mar uh, email from Mark, um, it was, uh, I'm going to uh, bring it back, but it was just a, an initial uh, reach out where Mark Bailey was a student at, at 17 years old um, at a school called Summit School for the Arts, where I was 
the program director for about six to seven months. And I was recruited to come work at the school, which was in Chisago City, Minnesota, by my father. And my father was an ex-3HO person by this time. He had moved to Minnesota, but he carried on his persona and spoke about himself as the as a Guru Nanak Sikh and still really very much used 3HO and the, the identity of where he'd come from in this new context of starting the school. And so when I had been recruited to work at the Summit School for the Arts, I was 22 years old. And we'll talk more about that on this podcast. But the initial reach out of the um, email didn't surprise me because I don't take it lightly that when I'm speaking out loud about predators and learning to speak clearly and cleanly to, to abuse and predator behavior that has taken place in my upbringing and in 3HO context and, and what I've spoken to on our podcast here, I don't take it lightly that the areas of my life where I may have been a predator to other people are going to reveal themselves. And this is <clears throat> something I take seriously and I bring curiosity to because when I received your email, Mark, I um, wanted to lean into it because I realized suddenly, oh, whoa, what happened during that time? I don't really have a lot of remembrance of. I haven't had to look at that. I haven't had to face that. And um, so I wanted to context that for listeners here that uh, this email came at a time when I was already wrestling around with identity and, and shedding illusions of myself and, and asking for the ability to see myself more clearly. So Mark's email reach out basically um, made me look at the happenings around the the school shutting down and um before we even continue i just want to say hi mark thanks for being here i want to say that your email was refreshing you know this we um essentially listeners you know this initial email uh made me say oh gosh um what happened at during that time i don't even i haven't really spent much time on this and <clears throat> We had a series of conversations back and forth that um, we, we spoke and then um, exchanged emails and shared stories. And Mark coming on the podcast didn't become relevant to me so much until I read some of Mark's healing process and some of the writing that he had shared with me. And um, <clears throat> I think before that, I really would like to just share with listeners what that time was like for me, because when I got recruited to work at Summit School for the Arts, my dad was in the was in the throw had been in the throes for several years of starting schools. And, and this was kind of his M.O., when I was in high school, I had left Minnesota and moved to Africa, and I had remembered uh, sexual abuse from my father and confronted him when I was in high school. 
and he gaslit me and um, had a real way with words. And so at that time, I, I know I just used the strength of what I had to kind of get out from underneath his influence because I realized he had a lot of psychological influence around me. And I ended up, you know, marrying a man in, in Africa and, and living in the South African ashram and just having a, a wonderful experiences. But by the time I had come back to the U.S., um, my context of my upbringing was very much in a community value. Like so much of my opportunities came from the benefit of where I had come from with 3HO. And South African ashram was one of those experiences, being able to you know live and work in, in, in the South African 3HO ashram and then in DC, in the Virginia ashram. And so when I got recruited to work at Summit School for the Arts, for me, it was very normal. It was kind of like uh, the, 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 it's not what you know, but who you know, and the benefit, even though by 15, I was very much aware that there was a lot of hypocrisy in our upbringing and infidelity and things that didn't make a lot of sense. I was extracting the benefits of what I felt like was the benefit was the community and the connections and the relationships. And I very much benefited from um, relationships in our, in of the different ashrams. And so I'm 22 years old. I'm back in the United States with my new husband from Kenya and I want to, him to meet my dad. And of course my dad recruits me to come work as a program coordinator. Now to give you context, I didn't, hadn't even finished my degree yet. I was finishing my degree as an independent learner. I had a lot of experience as an independent learner because I had done my high school and my university work as an independent learner. So in my dad's infinite wisdom, he recruits me to be this position in the school that he had started several years ago with some other folks. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I'm a, a young 22 year old and I meet Mark um, because he was one of the oldest students of summit school for the arts. And I'm living on the farmhouse of my dad's farm, my dad's family farm. And I'm running this school with my new husband from Kenya there who's not working there legally he's he's in the united states legally but um, he's not working for the school i'm the one paid and my dad is also not paid at this school he is um well i'll let mark tell this part but um essentially mark was a 17 year old student when i came to work at the school and he had already been a student at the school for several years and <clears throat> what i want listeners to hear is that the initial email he writes out to me is basically like, um, before the time when the school shut down, I believe I owed you $600 for cannabis. And um, I want to come clean on that. And I also want to just share my experiences and healing. And, and I welcome this kind of reach out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Why would you owe me money? for cannabis now, just to, for listeners to understand, like I've always been a proponent of cannabis and I'm a fan. <clears throat> I always have been and, and all the things, but that's not my identity. I, I didn't have a sense of identity around remembering that I had, that Mark owed me money for any um, and what any of that was about. So a part of our conversation was like, kind of like, whoa, what actually happened back then? And how did the school get shut down? And what actually took place? And realizing that this time period for me was dark. 
I didn't have a lot of remembrance. And so Mark's expression and reach out to me kind of sparked an awareness that I didn't have remembrance. And then what happened was a flood of memories uh, came forth and um, reading your writings about my father after I had already done a lot of processing and healing around him and then starting to do this podcast where further down we've been breaking the manipulation and the abuse that is context and housed in 3HO. It was a, a welcomed exchange to actually hear, obviously not that you were mentally and psychologically abused by him as well, but that you've processed that and to hear your lens of things. So I want to say thank you for the work you've done on yourself and, um, and the courage you've had to share and write your experiences about healing. Um, anyway, so I, I, I want to speak out loud the challenge that happens when people share their stories and their healing experiences. And it, it, it shakes up our worldview. It shakes up our own sense of identity around times that perhaps we've forgotten or housed inside of ourselves in, in distant memories that we don't have to think about. Um, so I don't know where we want to begin, Mark, but I want to just say out loud, um, I, this is where we want to begin. Never mind. I know exactly where. So these emails, so the emails are exchanged. I start looking at myself like what actually took place. And the memory that came forth was that the school had gotten shut down and it was all very abrupt and it was very fast. And essentially I played a key role in, in a lot of the, um, the shakeup and the illegal activity and behavior and miss and um, uh, not not having any responsibility in in what happened in the aftermath of, of summit school shutting down in 1999 and I started to realize that I didn't remember why it was all so fast and so Mark's sharing of the experience of what actually took place there do you want to share that? Do you want to help me contact that here um, before we get into Medi Piate and, and, and what you learned here, like what was actually taking place? Like, how, um, well, I mean, as far as the school shutdown, um, there were a few different things happening simultaneously. Um, there was uh, non-compliance with the law, just in general, having to do with special ed requirements and maybe other stuff. Um, there was the pot investigation when uh, the, you know, the police caught wind of, you know, this pot selling that we were doing. And, uh, you know, and of course it was involving kids in a school. And so uh, everybody freaked out. I was brought in for a, you know, a long, like two hour plus uh, in uh, interview and other students were brought in for interviews. Um, and there was, uh, you know, one kid who uh, was disabled and had asthma and they apparently found pot in his system. And, uh, you know, and that was another 
another prong of it, you know, and so it all it all kind of came to a head at once in the fall of 1999 and the school was shut down by the end of the year. So listeners, Mark reaches out and that this is the information he kind of passes on to me and it makes me examine this time within myself like, whoa, what was going on at that time, right? And um, the remembrance, like the flooding of the memory of, of remembering all that, like, whoa, and that we had left, you know, me and, me and my husband at the time, we left the farmhouse quite rapidly and moved into St. Paul. And I suddenly remembered I didn't have to take any accountability for what that means as a professional young adult being a responsible paid employee of a public charter school and having a, uh, a key role in, in an investigation around pot and lack of boundaries with kids of that school. And I started to realize that like, wow, I'm living on the farmhouse with my father who was an early known predator to me and then at this time, it's not that I had forgotten. I just didn't necessarily know how to deal with it. And I loved my father for lots of reasons. He had helped me and supported me in so many ways. So it wasn't exactly so clear and cut around. It's just memories that are there, right? Um, so I'm the one getting paid at the school. And my dad strategically wasn't a paid employee. And, and he generally did that in the communities that he worked in. He, he served and had influence in lots of ways, but didn't necessarily hold a position of accountability. And so it makes sense that I would get recruited into this position. Um, but I want to say out loud that I, we left the farmhouse, me and my husband at the time, at the shutdown of the school and didn't have any connection or, or um, follow up with any of the students um, and anything that happened or any of the parents because of this uh, it was like a, a local county investigation around pot. And, you know, my dad had been living there for many years. Again, I had just come there for several months and stepped into what I now know is, is quite a predator's lair. Um, but this is what I'm kind of having awareness of in reflection. Now it doesn't take a, away the responsibility of myself as a young adult in, in, taking a, a paid position in a public school, <laughs> supporting children. And the next decade of my life, I ended up in a network marketing business and went into entrepreneurship. So I didn't go into the school system. I didn't have to use a resume to try to use old references of the work I had just come from. Um, and to, you know, and to kind of give credit to my own 22 year old self, this wasn't uncommon for me either. You know, I'm living on a farmhouse where there's lack of boundaries amongst kids and adults. And, you know, I first learned to use drugs and smoke from my dad and other young adults, adults that, that I trusted. So this is kind of a real normal thing. And yet it shouldn't be a state of normal. And in reflection, I can say that. And as a functioning, you know, person examining their trauma history, but I want to pause for the feeling of my heart that there are students that I impacted and parents and people that were left because of my irresponsibility. 
and my lack of ability to even know what boundaries were. And what it means to be a victim of trauma and sexual abuse and predatory abuse and not heal to where we can just repeat it and, and repeat things that are normal to us but aren't actually healthy. Part of the initial reach out as well, and a part of you know Mark's healing uh, is his own early childhood sexual abuse, and his healing from that, and his coming out of that, as specifically in a small town like Minnesota, like Chisago City or Taylor's Falls, or the, the communities that we're speaking of. Um, I, I want to just say that there are listeners that know of this time, of this place, of Chisago City and the farmhouse that my dad was kind of envisioning this utopia community um, and participated in hurting a lot of people and a lot of people in that community and surroundings communities communities were hurt and have been hurt and have never been um, acknowledged. So today, the reason that I'm speaking to this and kind of letting myself be outed in this place. It gives me a distaste in my mouth. It's, it's uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, And I want you to all to know that, Um, but it didn't become relevant for me to bring on this podcast until a few emails and more discussed within myself about myself, as well as like, self-compassion about what it means as the person, the 22-year-old self of mine that was under the influence of of my father and his amazing visionary oration. Um, But it was this, it was this email, and this is where we're going to segue here. Um, Mark shared with me a little bit of his writings and some of our exchanges. And we, again, we both shared early childhood sexual abuse and um, just the healing process of this and being open to really examining the summit school for the arts shut down and the reasons for it getting shut down. My recollection was very much in that uh, we were out of compliance for special ed regulation. You know, I, I lived and breathed the school, everything that I've ever committed to, I've lived and breathed it to where I've, you know, lost weight and didn't eat, you know, it was like became my life. And, um, when we were getting shut down for helping so many kids, it just didn't make sense to me, you know? And in that story, I also didn't take the the responsibility of seeing like, whoa, what am I doing selling pot to a student who's 17 years old? And what am I doing smoking with any of these people or around any of these young people that were students of our school? What are we doing having them spend the night? Like what at our house? Like what? So like all of the layers that that could be not good in terms of interfacing with the public sector and private life and farmhouse community living. And um, so once again, as this is dismantling in me and I'm starting to like, look at like, oh my gosh, why was this okay? He shares with me this, this segment of his writings Um, And and one of them, he comes down and he said, had Summit School not shut down amid scandal, 
my life might have been very different had my mentor Medi Piare not treated me like a guinea pig in his educational experiment. My life might not have been so screwed up. Using a combination of conversations, psychedelic drugs, and manipulations of both my physical and subtle energy bodies, Medi Piare indoctrinated, indoctrinated me into a belief system that was neither ethical nor operative in society. Although his actions toward me didn't seem sexual in nature, they were probably as damaging as John Larson's abuse had been. It took years to separate the important truths he espoused from the nonsense and magical thinking in which these truths were embedded. So when I read that, I suddenly, it went from this personal experience of like a shared um, abuse awareness of like kind of mutual early childhood abuse and my part in being neglectful um, in the care of, of um, my position at Summit School when you were a student to realizing, holy smokes, like your reflection of what my father, Medi Piate, and your relationship with him was, you named, you nailed that, the psychological and the magical thinking and the, the pulling apart of what was real in that mentorship from the psychological abuse. And so when I heard that, I was like, whoa, this is absolutely a conversation I want to have on the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. Um, because it's not just personal. It's not just about this time where I worked at Summit School and you were a student and, and me kind of healing my process with that in relation to you is no longer just a personal exchange and opportunity for healing between us. But for me, it suddenly became relevant to the context of the 3HO <clears throat> um, formula that we've already been talking about when it comes to the predator experience is not just about Yogi Bhajan. It's not just this what he did to the women that have been horrifically abused in, in his um, time, in his life. But it's about what's been infused in the teachings and in the behavior and in the psychology of, of the students that were his earliest students, as well as the permeated ethos that got created that continues to play out in the teachings and in, in classes and in, in 3HO overall as an ethos and as a corporation. So this is why I reached out to you. I think you know that, Mark. And I want to just kind of turn it over to you to to um, read what you wanted to share with us um, <clears throat> or context anymore around how you met Medi Piate and all the things. Okay. Well, I mean, I've just got a chapter from my short book, Navigating Dystopia, that uh, kind of sums up the school and my relationship with Metapiare and kind of the harm that I experienced as a consequence of that. Um, and then we can zoom in on any part of it that you want uh, once I'm done reading it. Sounds great. So, all right, so uh, Summit School for the Arts was a charter school in Chisago City, Minnesota. I first heard about it when I was 15 peddling handmade goods at a craft fair at a local coffee shop. A man with a long white beard and a crocheted cap told me about the school and got me interested. His name was Medapiare Calsa. Officially, he was the school's visionary. 
After dragging my parents to a meeting at the unused summer camp where the school was located, I enrolled. Meripiare became my mentor. At the school and at his nearby farmhouse, he slowly described his revolutionary vision for the future, with Summit School playing a small but crucial role in this revolution. This made me feel like I was a part of something important. Summit School was small. There was never really more than 50 students, K through 12, and most of the time the student body was only half that size. There was a teacher for the younger kids and a teacher for the older kids, one or two administrators, and parent volunteers usually present. A board of directors was technically responsible for everything. I sat on this board as a student representative beginning at age 16. Learning was mostly self-directed with each student working an individualized plan. There were some structured classes which were taught by parents or community members. Uh, physical education was perhaps the most interesting. My favorite was fencing with kinesiology a close second. When I was 16, Metapiare supplied me with a heroic dose of magic mushrooms at a reggae concert in St. Paul. I left my body and had an amazing journey through an abstract space filled with shapes. Metapiare later drove me and another student in his car while he was tripping on mushrooms himself. From that point on, drug use became a regular part of our interactions. While I spent a few days a week commuting to college classes in the city, my days at the school were often unstructured. I just did whatever I felt like and so did everybody else. The permissive environment did produce some good learning outcomes, but the whole thing was basically a hippie fantasy land, which was problematic because it was a publicly funded school. There were times when my schoolwork would consist of endless meetings. There'd be planning meetings and board meetings and grant writing meetings. In between these meetings, I'd meet with Metapiare and he'd tell me what to say. We'd frequently game out the meetings to come up with the best way to advance his agenda. At the time, I loved the intrigue. For the most part, Summit School's individualized learning plans were great. Its use of community experts to teach classes made perfect sense. The days I spent with another student in an unused basement room, listening to Jefferson Airplane records and making art, did more to prepare me for my real life than regurgita regurgitating the contents of some textbook ever could have. The school should have become a great example of effective alternative education. Instead, it became a cautionary tale. At one point, Metapiare got his daughter Guru Nishan a job with the school and I started selling weed for her. A community member found out and reported her to the authorities. At the same time, Summit School was found to not be complying with the law. The state shut down the school and the cops started asking questions. My own police interrogation lasted maybe two hours. At that time, I was told that Metapiare and his family left town fleeing the investigation. Later, I would learn that they were never even interviewed by police. Fortunately, the state allowed me and a few other students to complete our graduation projects and re receive diplomas, but the scandal destroyed my plans for the future. I'd been a poster child for the school's success and the school failed. I'd been counting on receiving help applying for scholarships, knowing my parents couldn't afford to put me through college, but I had no access to resources like this outside of this failed school. And suddenly, everyone was talking trash about my mentor which suggested to me that maybe he wasn't such a great guy after all. Eventually, I came to understand that he wasn't just some nice old man. He was a radical ideologue systematically furthering his ideas. Employing a combination of conversations, psychedelic drugs, and manipulations of both my physical and subtle energy bodies, 
Metapiare indoctrinated me into a belief system that was neither ethical nor operative in society. In the moment, this indoctrination usually seemed playful and spontaneous, yet it always advanced his agenda and I always played along. In Metapiare's reality, there were regular people and special people. Regular people supported the evil system while special people were enlightened enough to see the system for what it was. In this belief structure, the rules of the system only applied to regular people. The enlightened pretended to follow the rules to appease the unenlightened regular people, but they were really working in secret to bring about the system's downfall. Now, as a teenage outcast, I completely bought into this worldview. And Metapiare also spent countless hours coaching me to con the regular people in all sorts of ways. Most of this focused on tuning my quality of manner or vibe to produce specific reactions in those I was interacting with. In many instances, the instruction included things like breathing techniques, posture, and control of subtle energies. Sometimes the purpose was to train me to impress education officials. Sometimes it was to teach me how to smuggle contraband without getting caught. Now the drug use that was a standard part of our interactions made me more receptive to these lessons. With or without Metapiare, I would have been using drugs at that time. But with him, the drug use was always accompanied by philosophical indoctrination. Marijuana, magic mushrooms, meth, other stuff. The use of these substances ensured that I wasn't thinking critically, even as Metapiare swore that learning to think critically was foundational to the philosophy he espoused. Let's see. So that's what I got there. Oh, listeners. I hope you're letting all that land. (laughs) We might have to go back through that with some stanzas. There were just some points around the worldview. Yeah, and the regular people versus the special people. The regular people versus the special people. And that the rules only apply to the special, right? To the regular people. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Do you want to talk more about... um, what it was like to many Patty was obviously your mentor early 15 and the school got shut down more like when you were 17, almost 18. I was 18 when I first shut down. Oh, yeah. You were 18 by this time. So, you know, I really knew you at this um, 17 to 18, as far as I was concerned, you were, you were an adult independent learner, you know, and, everybody, you know, I went to high school as an independent learner too. So basically like Mark is an example of, of what I had done. Like it was kind of this apart, what he's describing as the revolutionary thing at this time, like we're creating independent learners through this special educational system. And I had gone through a, a, a public school in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I also did an independent learning curriculum. So this wasn't far off in terms of a utopia idea to get a, a high school degree through this independent learning system. But the vision or this particular context of the school that my dad had started at Summit School for the Arts, 
he began mentoring you early and he introduced himself as a Sikh, no? Oh, yeah. I, I never heard of 3HO through him at all. It was always he was a Sikh. He talked about Guru Nanak. He'd talk about, you know, the importance of the hair and he'd talk about the, you know, all the all the different things. And he would he would do it enough that it was kind of like part of his standard of communication was describing himself as this holy man to whoever was listening. So I want listeners to hear this because by the time my dad had moved to Minnesota, which was around 1992, he had left the 3HO ashram and he was the minister of the Phoenix ashram until um, maybe 1990 or something. And so a few years later, he leaves the 3HO community but he always maintained this identity of himself as this Guru Nanak Sikh. And he would have, you know, espouse whole philosophies around, you know, um, you know, Kundalini yoga, as well as, you know, what the real meaning of Sikha, Sikhi is and just like what it was for him and that he never really was leaving anything, you know. Um, so I really want people to hear that, like the persona that that Mark received from Medipiati living in a small town, which it happens to be the, you know, the town that he grew up in. So it's, he's back and now he's this long haired, white bearded man with a kufi cap on, right? He no longer even wore a Sikh turban, but he still espoused the philosophy of himself living a Sikh life. And it was his own interpretation of, I'm a student of life, you know, I'm a student of the guru and that he can interpret that in any way that he wants to. But he, you know, he didn't necessarily live a 3HO lifestyle. Um, he drank alcohol and, you know, he didn't wear a turban and obviously plenty of drugs. Cause, and I also want listeners to hear that, you know, my Medipiade, my, my dad, he also played that role quite a bit with a lot of the teenagers in 3HO, um, meaning a lot of the teenagers that were coming back from India in that first age group, which was like 10 years older than me. Uh, that first group that went to, you know, GNFC, you know, those that might've been experiencing, you know, experimenting with drugs. My dad was kind of this gateway person um, that kind of made it make sense. And so when Mark's talking about the philosophical teaching that came along with uh, the taking of magic mushrooms or or smoking pot or or, um, any any psychedelic, any LSD, you name it. My dad would go on and on around how to do it and the right philosophies and all the things and built this whole persona around himself, um, um, justifying why this behavior basically was okay. Yeah, and I'll also just add that he... um would talk frequently about his spiritual lineage. Um, And the reason that that's important is that it increases perceptions of credibility in an audience, you know? So he would talk about his spiritual lineage in such a way as to say, oh yeah, you really are the holy man with this direct connection to this guru and, you know, in India way back when. And, you know, in rural Minnesota in the late 90s, nobody knew any better. Yeah. So he would go and do his normal MO, hang out at a coffee shop and kind of like 
magnetize whatever people that could then kind of get into his web's layer of what did you call it ideologue of <laughs> of ideas right yeah he was a radical ideologue yeah. that is such a good interpretation of Medipiati. a radical ideologue like he just spewed ideas kind of waiting for somebody around him to pick it up and do something with it right well and <laughs> yeah and a lot of them were actually good i mean one of the reasons Great. i have such a solid uh <laughs> environmental awareness is because we'd go through and take walks in the forest and he would explain things like succession he would explain how these ecosystems worked and it you know that was all accurate information you know it was just blended with other information that was conditionally accurate or not accurate at all pause he just said how accurate information is infused with inaccurate information as well as conditionally accurate information conditionally accurate information listen to that and this is really important to, to like the spewing of a teaching we want to make something right or wrong and that's not exactly how it works especially with predatory abusive behavior that we become normalized with right is it's infused with things that are true so there's a slice of truth in there and then it's wrapped up with conditionally true information as well as absolutely not true information together it's enmeshed which is what makes it so confusing to even be able to identify and name much less be able to um stop so what so well said i just have to say that like whoa the infusion of that. So like um, this becomes extremely relevant when we're hearing the this wise man persona that what I'm hearing you say is that he basically in, uh, made a part of his explanation of himself. And and he got to do that, I'm guessing, through the introduction of his name. Right. Explain more. Yeah, so it would be oftentimes it would be the name or it would also commonly be the bracelet oh. you know because you know long beards that was sometimes a part of it but more often it would be the the things that people hadn't seen before which are the name or the bracelet um because you know those were were less common and so, so the then, bracelet let's pause for those of you that don't know uh, the five K's of being a Sikh, right? One of them is wearing a kata, right? So we grew up, right? Men wore katas on the right hand, women wore katas on the left hand, and um, kesh, right? We don't cut our hair as reverence to um, kesh, the hair. And, um, you know, I'm not even going to go into all the five K's, but I want to point out that my dad picked and chosen what things he wanted to do and still identified himself as a Sikh, whether he's a practicing Sikh, you know, every person has a right to identify them the way they want to with their creator, right? Um, but what my dad did very well is 
use these identifiers of kind of these areas of exceptionalism or specialness and created maintained an identity and persona that linked to the ancient old lineage of being a Sikh. So there's legitimacy in Guru Nanak and there's legitimacy in the religion um, so that his wise man look, whether it's the beard, Mark's bringing up the kata. Um, he didn't wear a turban at this time, but he still wore like a kufi hat, which would be considered like a Muslim's cap, which obviously still kind of has this wise man persona energy look to it. No, my dad happened to be bald, so he was probably just trying to find ways to cover his baldness. But he also moved into baseball caps, but not often because a baseball cap gives a very different persona. Baseball cap and beard. Baseball cap. Exactly. <laughs> You know, because, and I, I yeah, saw him in all types of states, you know, because there were times when we would get hammered together and then like make ham and eat ham. And then he would swear he was still a vegetarian and just we just wouldn't talk about the fact that we had eaten ham and eggs. Um, you know, but I but I never saw him in a baseball cap. I feel like that would have been too, too far for him to go in our relationship. He needed to maintain a, a level of wisdom and philosophical wisdom. Right. This is extremely relevant in the sense that even though my dad had left 3HO and somebody can leave the Dharma, they can also carry on a very long history of unprocessed and unmetabolized pain and of trauma in their own Um and play out the philosophies. And my dad did that very well. He played out um, really good ideas that he never really brought to, you know, that he never ever brought full circle and supported fully, you know? And so the, um, I find that why this is so important is this is an, this is a non 3HO community that he ends up starting creating in an entirely different city called Chisago city, Minnesota. And it's not a context of 3HO anymore. And yet what you're pointing out essentially in what you just read is a level of psychological and subtle body manipulation that he not only played out as a member of the visionary of the school, which I'd like you to talk a little bit more about if you would, um, but also played out specifically in his mentorship to you. And that was unique. I don't think he necessarily did uh, psychedelics with just any student at the school. Like you were like this protege. I don't know if that's the right word, but this kind of one under the wing that you were going to represent the success of the school. And I'd like you to talk about that as well. So prodigy, that's the word prodigy. <laughs> You're the prodigy. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm aware, he only used psychedelics with one other student at the school. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, and it was all, all the, the older students, um, but I, I was going to say that was purely an age thing. I think I don't think my dad had much discernment. I think it was a pure age thing. No, right. Right. And I think even more than just the age thing, I think he was always gauging whether or not it would get him in trouble. And he figured he could do anything with me and it wouldn't get him in trouble because I, I was, you know, already a well-known delinquent. Um, 
you know, so um, in his capacity as visionary at the school, um, he was, I mean, to say he was manipulative doesn't quite capture the level of influence he exercised um, because he would go through systematically and look at every single person who was going to be involved in a decision and he would look at their personalities and he would look at their weak spots and he would figure out a way to uh, use to, to push them like buttons until he could hit the objective that he wanted you know and it could be something like a rule change at the school or um you know maybe uh, like who had input into a decision it was always you know the, the minutiae of the the school's operations he was deeply involved in them even though i'm not sure he ever sat on the board um but i sat on the board and, Hold on, pause. Uh, he he never really had a board position. He just influenced every single board member. As far as I know. Wow, that is so wild to think that he wasn't on the board because he went to every meeting. He was like the main head of all the meetings almost, I want to say. Yeah, that's how it seemed. And when, when he wasn't doing it, it was me in there basically speaking with his voice. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was like, it's, it's hard to even picture an organization like a school um, being run so completely by one person, especially because they weren't in any official position of authority. But that's kind of how it, how it was, was it was like his school that he was running according to his philosophy, um, you know, and then the uh, means by which it was run was manipulating people. You know, whether it was me or other community members, he'd call them up and say one thing to one person and another thing to another person and another thing to another person. And at the meeting, they would all say what he predicted they would say, and then he would get the result he wanted. Whoa. And this is all in from when you first began from 2000, uh, when you were 15 years old? Yeah. Um, and my understanding of how the school, do you know how many years earlier the school was started before you got there? I got there right away. It was a very short-lived thing. Um, so it was the first year the school was in operation. I got it. signed up and was a part of it, you know, and then got I turned it. 16 immediately after it opened because my birthday's in the fall. Got it. Um, and I know that from, from the limited understanding I have, the um, he had started it him and his wife had started it with another couple and then the other couple who was more like the foundation of the knowing the laws and education and how charter schools run and kind of like all the real organizing and making things happen couple, they dropped out. And then, you know, my dad's wife at the time, my stepmom, she was focused on her job elsewhere. And so he ended up becoming the person that kept this vision alive and whoever else was still there after all that initial dismantle. And then, um, and then came this kind of new revival. I don't know when all that happened, but. Yeah, um, I think there was probably a couple of years of preparation to be done before the school ever opened, you know? So I'd imagine, I remember hearing about that other couple and they were the founders, but then they bowed out before the school ever officially opened. 
you know, such that by the time I was there, it was kind of like Merapiare trying to wrangle everybody, you know, and then he, he found me and, you know, I was a bright kid and I was already, I had already quit school to teach myself a year or two before. And so I was already on the independent learning track and I was like the perfect person to help him realize his vision. And this is a really important um, context for everyone to hear that once again, it's like he's wrangling, Meripiare's wrangling, you know, all the different elements and controlling the narrative. He's basically painting the picture, planting the seeds in all of the participants. And as Mark described, getting the result he wants by making sure each of the board members are the mouthpiece essentially for the the suggestive influence that he planted in all of them and to have that runnings happening before he did all this in minnesota my dad was the minister of the 3ho community in phoenix so he's not learning community and how, you know these types of things out of nowhere right there's a history to this and this is what's so important about how this relates to 3ho because subtle body manipulation, psychological suggestion, these types of things are very much embedded in our upbringing. It's very much embedded in the teachings, the, repetition, the rep repetitive, suggestive, operative um, experiences that we've grown up around that perhaps we haven't seen it as such. And that's why I find Mark's story so helpful, because he doesn't join 3HO. He doesn't join Kundalini Yoga. And yet he got into the web's layer of somebody who very much came from a context of 3HO of subtle body manipulation and carried on that predator behavior in another community in the way he learned to formulate this summit school for the arts community. And that at a young age, Mark becomes the, you know, the prize mentee of this wise visionary who's creating a utopia school of, you know, future thinking and the possibility of all that can be to reshape education, economics, and agriculture. <laughs> and war, too, because it was war. always about ending war. <laughs> there was always the war model. Yeah. Yes. Um. Well, it so took you a thing, while. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I was just, I think we were going in the same place. It, for a long time after the school shut down, I firmly believed that, um, you know, Metapiare's instruction was sound and that, you know, he had done really a good thing. And it was just these, you know, the, the evil system had had messed up what, you know, this utopia, um, you know, and it took me a long time of really carefully going over um, the things that actually happened and um, the information that I got and really, um, you know, how that, how that affected me in my life to understand that, um, you know, I didn't really receive great instruction from Metapiare. You know, he basically programmed me um, 
in a way that didn't make sense for the real world. And so that caused all kinds of problems. And most of them were very subtle. You know, it would be like, I would make a decision in a moment and I wouldn't even think about it. And then I would have to look back and say, oh shit, I just totally manipulated that person. I just did exactly what Meta Piata used to do. And I got my way and I don't feel good about it. And the reason I don't feel good about it is because it's wrong to manipulate people. You know, but it took me years to figure that out. By recognizing it in yourself. Yeah. I can very much relate to that. To notice that you're doing something that somebody did to you that you didn't like. Right. And suddenly. Even if I liked it in the moment, it's like some things are just wrong. You know, you take away someone's willpower when you manipulate them. And so that's abusive. Yeah. And um, suggestive thinking and psychological manipulation where we're taking away someone's willpower. Like he's, Mark is talking about having the experience, naming the experience of a mentor of his that influenced his ability to feel his own will and to make choices for himself. And I wanted to say that, you know, when I was in high school, I became aware of that in relation to my father, that his his influence over me made it very hard for me to distinguish what I wanted. And I automatically wanted what he wanted me to say. And I was so good at that that I couldn't even notice I was doing that. And it took me not being at it under his influence to begin to even be able to feel like, yeah, there is a decision of mine that wants to be made, but it's so cloaked within the um, influence of his, of his atmosphere. And that is what I'm hearing you say is it's just so similar like that. And this is this can be really similar to like what we're experiencing in our community, right? And 3HO is like things that we've always contexted and lived within one frame of it. Suddenly, when you pull outside of that frame, you, you can begin to feel that there was always another feeling, but you never had the permission to actually notice that. Um, and you couldn't feel yourself under that level of... Um, psychological manipulation. I think this is what's really challenging about saying that the teachings are what's such a wonderful technology um, because it's not taking into account how much predatory behavior is infused within the teachings themselves that are actually kind of built-in psychological manipulative processes that we don't even recognize as control, thinking control mind control because it's so infused within this wonderful technology that is good for the nervous system or whatever. This is where I think we fall prey to that within um, KRI and, and Kundalini yoga and all of that. And also how this person who unidentified with 3HO who maintained this persona 
carries on this wisdom formula and continues to spew psychological manipulation, subtle body control, subtle body control, and teaching Mark how to then do it, not just have it done to him, but he then played that out. And this is how you, you begin to dissect and notice it in yourself. So, so tell us more. So like you went from seeing, seeing this worldview as like a good worldview to suddenly being able to see it for what it actually is instead of through this lens that you were taught to see it. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of like a really slow process for me that was tangled up with, you know, my own healing from sexual abuse from a community member that was unrelated to this and uh you know and dealing with chronic illness and i went through all kinds of complicated traditional and alternative healing stuff and um and it kind of slowly became more and more clear but then what what really crystallized my understanding was when i started working for uh the website wanttoknow.info where you know i was working for and i still do a high level state department whistleblower um, and the website is all about corruption and cover-ups and so i started really diving into uh, the mind control experiments that had gone on that our government did that other governments did that cults do you know and i got a really clear understanding of that and as that understanding grew i started realizing that meta Piare's instructions we're hitting all the buttons, you know, literally all the, the buttons of, okay, here we've got the psychedelic drugs, you know, okay, here we've got uh, extreme physical exertion, like we go on these long, intense walks, you know, okay, here we've got this type of communication, you know, okay, here, and it just one thing after another, and I realized that his program was a mind control program, um, you know, that was like he was actually carrying out with me the same kinds of things that the CIA tried to and failed to carry out um, with other people in the, you know, 50s and 60s. Um, and so, you know, so that's when it, it really hit home, like, fuck. Like, yeah, I was, you know, I, I hate the term brainwashed because it doesn't really describe things accurately. But I was very much um, under his influence as a result of his application of these mind control techniques, you know, and so. Well said, you know, I process so much about my relationship with my dad over decades, um, all the way up until he died in 2006. But I have to say that when I read and hear you describe it, it just it nails manipulative behavior, narcissistic behavior, sociopathic behavior, it nails this behavior so clearly. And it's, it's, you know, when something's like embedded in your family, it's a little, it feels a little more messy and entangled. Um, so for, to hear it from your lens, it, it's not just personal. It's a very predatory formula, what he's talking about, right? You're talking about just Check mark, check, check, check. Oh yeah, all of these behaviors are what's used at high level CIA to brainwash and manipulate. And like, this is a regular part of the MO of, of relating, of community organizing, of community, of healthy community sustainability. 
of critical thinking, you know, and this is what I find is so important here as well, is that predators are spewing predator behavior a lot of times and, quote, don't identify as a predator. You know, in his utopia, I think earnestly he lived in his own false world of not... um, of not seeing clearly himself. Yeah, and I think he also, you know, one story he told often, and I was surprised that he told it so often, was about when he was much younger and he was living in San Francisco and they had a water dispenser that was dosed with LSD. And so guests would come over to their apartment and they would get some water and they would be dosed with LSD. And he always told the stories about, you know, oh, his cousin came over and it was so funny when he realized what was happening, you know, but, uh, you know, thinking back on it, you, you don't dose someone with LSD without their consent because that's assault, <laughs> you know? And the fact that he looked so fondly back on that, that uh, whole episode, it, you know, it's fucking shocking when I think about it now, you know, and that he was telling me that story when I was a teenager, like, oh, that's a normal thing to do. It's like, no, no, that's that's really bad. Yeah, when we come into the conversation around consent, right? Um, You know, purely speaking out of the 60s and everybody must be drinking LSD, I guess, at that time, but still like, what is going on? What I like what you're saying is the worldview that that he would take on and then make everything fit within that worldview of rightness. And it goes back to what you're saying of the special people and the regular people and the rules of who applies to what and the navigating of that. Um, because on one hand, you know, I think that Medi Piare and my father really believed so much of what he put out, but he also took zero responsibility or accountability for anything past, present or future. And this this hearing you describe the uh, a checkmark formula of manipulative behavior as a normal process for me, it really houses his behavior so much, just so much more crystal clear as a uh, a long history of intentional manipulation. This is, this wasn't, it wasn't like a byproduct similar to what we're seeing in 3HO and and YB's behavior. Like these are intentional controlling behaviors to get people to um, systematic, to get people to relinquish their own will and do the things you want them to do. So was there more in a, what you went through in terms of awakening to realizing he wasn't a real mentor, that he was actually really had embedded like manipulative tactics that you found yourself running on? Well, I mean, it's the kind of thing that there's always more the more you dig. Um, you know, I guess... Uh, one of the biggest things I noticed in my life was that, um, you know, there were behaviors that I would hide 
even from people who were close to me um, for a long time when I was younger, you know, so they might be, it, it could be anything, you know, totally innocuous, you know, but for whatever reason, I would feel like, like, oh, I've got to hide when I smoke a cigarette from this person, or, oh, I've got to hide when I, you know, do this. And, uh, and the way that I would experience myself in those moments of, oh, I've, I've got to do something that this person won't understand. I've got to be secretive about it. You know, that was always like, um, you know, Metapiata really effectively taught me how to hide things, you know, whether it was information or problematic behaviors. Um, you know, we would, <laughs> I won't even tell you some of the stuff that we would do, but there were situations that we were in where um, we could have gotten in big trouble, you know, like, uh, like big legal trouble even. Um, and we would have if it weren't for his teaching me how to be secretive in this very particular way that I'm convinced he learned when he worked in the Arizona prison system. Um, because that was, uh, and he would, he would talk about, it. he would teach me lessons from his time working with the prisoners, you know, and, you know, like his, uh, one he told all the time was about this guy who was in maximum security and was blind and somehow assembled everything he needed to make liquor you know, to distill liquor in a cell. And he would go through the details of that and how that worked. And then he would apply that to, okay, so we're looking at this situation over here. So what do we need to make our liquor? You know, we need this, we need this, we need this. Okay, how do we get all that stuff together to, you know, to make it happen? Oh, I just want you to keep telling stories. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, my dad taught, you know, he was a, a chaplain, um, Kundalini Yoga minister, Sikh Dharma minister, rather, at the at maximum security prisons in, in uh, Arizona uh, detention, detention facilities, much of my childhood. And I would also get all sorts of lectures around the prison system and its equation to the educational system and all sorts of things. I never got these types of things. But what I want to point out about what you're talking about that he did is he's rallying this group kind of revolution around this idea of like needing to overcome when you're as stuck as somebody in a maximum security prison cell, right? So you're creating a whole story and notion, which is like um, inspiring an element in, in the human longing to be a part of something bigger. So it's playing on our longing to belong and then using manipulative tactics to get people on board for whatever it is that that person is casting. And this is cult level. This is what happened in the upbringing of our own experience of 3HO cult, but it's it didn't come from Eddie Piatti, you know, he, he might have perfected it in his particular ways, but this is very much relevant to the infusion of of the whole culture in which we were embedded in and what YB was doing and then what he was be doing with that next level of leadership and the men leadership versus the women's leadership and really looking at the tactics that you're speaking to. That's why I want you to tell more stories because when you say it, it helps us see it. Okay, well, I mean, 
maybe the next place to take this then is the subtle energy stuff because um, that's a piece of it that not everyone really even has a context for um, you yeah. know so usually um, for me you know he would sometimes do certain kinds of chakra balancing um, yeah yeah that's the right face to make because <laughs> my dad doing chakra balancing. Let me just take a moment. Wow, <laughs> that, that was my puke face. Oh, right. Bad, but back to the chakra balancing. Let me clear your chakras. Let me read your Akashic records. All of the special wise formulas that people from spiritual communities that might have left their community hold on and keep a narrative and persona in the next community that they end up in and use these manipulative language to sound more expertise and as a way to access your energy system. So right. go ahead. I want to hear what he actually said. That one was terrible. Well, so, um, so sometimes it was just playful and fun, like, oh, it's, you, you need a pranic jolt, and then you get the particular kind of slap on the, on the back to... Uh, realign your energies um you know other times it was more uh, directed where there'd be like like half an hour to an hour of you know laying down and having the energy be worked on um so that was the overt subtle energy manipulation i referred to um and then there was also learning to identify your own subtle energy body and how it's how it's operating, and then how to um, observe other people's energy and where their energy might be stuck or what might be going on with it. And so, you know, there were times when we'd be we'd go out in public and he'd you know, point out, okay, what do you think about this person's energy? You know, what do you think about this person's energy? You know, and he basically trained me to, um, to correctly observe what was going on um, with other people's subtle energy, you know, so, um, so that's been pretty useful in my life, but I gotta say it was super weird, and especially in combination with all this other stuff i wanted to say i'm mortified by the pranic jolt and to hit you in the back do that thing and then um you're saying you'd take you out in public and actually train you to look at people's bodies and energy bodies and like where energy is in their system and where it's how the fact that this is taught out loud is a little blowing my mind, ladies and gentlemen. Like I am remembering that this is very much what I remember growing up, but it's like a weird kind of an internal memory that like we got that because we grew up around that. But why would you ever say that out loud as a teaching is what shows up to me and realizing like some of the kids have talked about getting the pranic jolt as a part of like abuse. Um so once again, the fact that this is just being taught that there were times where this was like actually 
things he mentored and taught to you and exchanged as this like holy teacher or this Kundalini teacher or whatever he was framing himself as to teach you how to a manage your own energy and to manage and read other people's energy. Yeah. It's such psychological manipulation and it's using spiritual wisdom in such a manipulative way, teaching a young person about themselves through this lens of um, dynamic control in a way. Yeah. I'm quite bothered, you know, I knew that I knew my dad uh, mentored and supported people in different ways, but like to hear the ways that he was actually teaching a young person like you in this capacity um, is, is feeling quite disgusting inside. Yeah. Well, and it's, I still have kind of mixed feelings about it. Um, because it's like, I think every kid should be taught about subtle energy. I think that should just be a standard thing in every culture because it's a part of who we are, you know? Um, so I'm glad I learned about it. Um, but it totally creeps me out. You know, the more time goes by, the more I learn, the more it creeps me out how it was actually done. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... I'll also just say, I don't really have a lot of opportunities to say this stuff out loud. Um, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to just kind of share this because I don't think there are too many people who would even understand. That's how a lot of us feel in 3HO. <laughs> a lot of the things we say out loud really only matter to other people <laughs> that have experienced it because there's no places to uh, say these things out loud and, and, um, and have them be context or made any sense um, as to why it's so weird or entangled inside. Um, and what you're saying goes back to the 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 complexity of where tr when truth, where fragments of truth are commingled with convenient truth and things that are not true at all, right? And that combination around, like on one hand. It is a very powerful thing to, to know our subtle bodies and to know our own energy bodies. I find what is extra confusing about this holy man, holy woman, healer, uh, spiritual persona, shaman, guru, teacher, coach, persona that people draw on their backgrounds of experiences, whether they spent X amount of years in this community or X amount of years of this lineage or X amount of years of Tibet or India or blah, blah, blah. Right. And then they're drawing on their persona to then once again, infuse elements of truth, which is really great. And then, but with other ways that it's actually quite predatory and quite manipulative and you can't always distinguish between it all, especially the more we come from childhood abuse, right? The more we have unprocessed, unmetabolized abuse, the more we're going to draw in these experiences because on some level it's familiar and comfortable <laughs> and supporting us. Um, but what I want to say specifically in relation to what you're saying is that 
it's disguised so well, you know, and he's Mark is really painting a picture of where a man positioned himself as a holy scholar with a lot of powerful philosophies that were housed in very real and truthful pedagogies. And these pedagogies included agriculture and sustainability and farming, and they included education, and they included a new worldview of economics and, and peace versus war, and just like this whole us versus them model. And that is so cult-like, right? It's a training of a worldview. It's making the us versus them. It's a special thing. And, and it's taking fragments of real truth and putting it all together into a new formed identity and how scary it is that you don't have to join 3HO or Kundalini Yoga to be ending up in the manipulative web of a lot of people who have been influenced by such communities such as this. So here Mark is a young man growing up and gets pulled into, you know, a, a web of manipulative nation and deceit. And on one level, I know it's really supported you, your own educational experience, as much as it was not good. There was also things you've grabbed that have been great. And um, even your experience, like you said, you were doing psych, psych uh, you were experimenting with drugs without Medipiare, but he added an element of um, indoctrination. indoctrination, but I was going to add spiritual wisdom, you know, that it, it's felt like spiritual wisdom, but it's actually an encoded indoctrination. So the doctrination lives on. And just for the record, you know, when the school shut down, and the students, you know, were able to get the support they needed to make sure that they graduated the oldest students. Me and Face Wally obviously skipped skipped the county and went to St. Paul to protect probably my legality because I was working there legally and probably would have taken the most responsibility. Um, and, you know, my, my dad didn't end up leaving for a while and Cutting didn't leave for a while. But within that next year, both of them ended up, um, you know, she left him and then he ended up leave, skipping town and, and doing his own a health journey, but he ended up another community called Harbin Hot Springs. And I absolutely know that he just took that same persona, the wise man, holy man persona and, and did it all again in another community and influenced people in whatever ways. And one doesn't have to sexually touch somebody to be a, a passing on an abusive and predatory formula that they take into the next community where they're the next coach or the next neighborhood. Do you want to speak to a little bit about this? Because I know you're quite familiar with people that abuse and then carry on in communities re, re, re-changing their persona. Yeah, is there any part in particular you want me to speak to? Um, just the challenge of um, what it means as a, as a survivor that's speaking out about abuse and realizing that the system isn't there to support you as the voice that, that these, these men, whether it was the one who was sexually abusing you early or Medi Piare was subtle and psychologically manipulating you, how there wasn't a, how the communities, do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I'll just say 
like I was sexually abused by a man named John Larson from the ages of 14 to 16. So there was actually some overlap there uh, between the time when I was being sexually abused by one guy and then I met your dad and, uh, you know, became his mentee. Um, so part of what I was trying to do and in becoming involved with your dad in this school and everything was escape this abusive situation that I was in where I was living on this property owned by a community member who was abusing me. Um, so in 2003, I uh, reported John Larson to the authorities, opened an investigation, uh, you know, did, did all of that um, in Taylor's Falls, Minnesota, which is in the same county as the school was in. Um, and the response I got from the community was basically, you're crazy and you made it all up. And that's, you know, like my family was really supportive, um, but the community itself was the opposite of supportive. Um, when the school shut down, um, you know, especially because I was 18 by that time, you know, it felt to me like everything was my fault. You know, and the information that I was getting from the community was like, hey, this is all your fault. And so, um, so like, what that taught me is that the abusers, if they're in, you know, positions of relative power, if they're socially popular, et cetera, um, they can do whatever they want. And if you speak up about it, you're the one who's going to, you know, catch the uh, catch the worst end of it and that was that was my experience you know in both those situations and uh, you know I think in society broadly that may be changing you know because this was 20 years ago um, but it's changing slowly and um, the knee-jerk reaction that most people have when they hear about abuse if it's in any way personal to them if it's someone that they know or whatever, you know, denial is like the first thing where, oh, I can't believe that would happen, you know, and then uh, oftentimes it's followed up by anger. Oh, I can't believe that would happen. And how dare you bring it up to me, you know, and so um, no matter what kind of abuse it is, whether it's sexual or psychological or physical or what have you, um, the whole fine structure of our society um, is designed to facilitate the abuse and not the healing and so um, well said. yeah I, I don't know if there's a good solution to that beyond what we're doing now just talking about it yeah I was going to just say talking about it and being willing to relook at something through the eyes of curiosity to say, what if it wasn't what I framed it to be all these years? You know, what if it wasn't healthy and good? What if it wasn't? Now, it, it doesn't mean that good parts completely get washed away, but it's a willingness to look through the, the picture, through the frame with a new lens so that we can name it for what it is so that the real distillation or the real processing can start taking place as opposed to kind of like it's just pushed away and you just house it as, oh, you know, that was, that was, that was okay. Well, was it okay? What if it weren't okay? 
who would I be? Who would they be if that were not okay? Right. And you start to see everything suddenly through a different lens because you've opened yourself to the possibility that says maybe that wasn't such a healthy mentorship. Well, what was it actually then? And it somehow I feel like, um, I don't know if this is the right words, but you know, the universe conspires to then bring the next thing into your atmosphere to let you dig a little deeper. Right. So whether it was like looking at the CIA manipulative tactics that allow you to then reframe your own experiences. And maybe it's this podcast for some people, right. It's listening to this conversation that says, Oh, wow. Something that I would have never named abuse. What if it was, what would that mean? What else didn't I see properly at that time? You know, and suddenly the floodgate of memories can come forward and we have to then hold ourselves. We have to get the support we need, whether that might be therapy um, or it might be more isolation. It might mean like taking more time for yourself and less engaged with other people. So you could begin to see and feel yourself more clearly. But either way, I want to say that our conversation, your willingness to speak out about it, my willingness, any of ours willingness, that is a part of this work and this solution because there's, there's far too many times where people come forward about abuse and then they're the ones that get blamed for speaking out and what you said in terms of denial and then anger and just all the stages that people go through, it doesn't make it okay. Even though they're named as stages <laughs> of denial, it doesn't make it okay as a survivor of abuse when you come out and you don't get the support that you need from your community or from your family. It makes it that much harder for, um, for us to voice up. Is there any other stories that you can share with us that helps us context um, some of the experiences that you've um, been able to extract that maybe you framed as good and then suddenly realized, no, that wasn't so good? Back here. There probably are, but none, none is, is coming immediately to mind. You know, well, I mean, anything, was, yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it's like years of spending really, really a lot of time with Metapiare. And so like, cause we'd do trips to the city together, you know, regularly. I'd sometimes I'd stay at the farm, you know, like it was, you know, we were together very frequently. And so like, um, so it, when you spend so much time with someone, it's hard to come up with the individual stories cause it's all kind of blended together. Well, if as I'm talking, you think of something, please make sure you let me know before we wrap up today. Okay. Um, what I wanted to say was that as we started engaging with our emails and then um, wanted you to be on this podcast, you know, it, just in the exchange of the emails, as I was getting flooded with memories of like, what did actually take time during that school? Hmm. What was the real context of why I got shut down? Um of course, I remembered all of the story that I knew and, and held, which was very much a painted picture that my father had given me. You know, I was very much under his lens of when Mark describes 
people coming to the board and being influenced. I, I don't, I wasn't on the board, but I was influenced. I mean, I was under my father's vision for what the school was, but I was the paid employee busting my behind to hire and, and make sure we had the certifications and these types of things. What I want to say is um, when all of these memories started flooding me, of course, I call anyone in my life that might remember, do you remember why the school got shut down? Do you remember why we moved to St. Paul so fast? And I call cutting, you know, I call my stepmom and um, my dad's wife at the time. And I say, do you have any recollection now? Just to give you context at that time, she's supporting her household, which is my dad and her and the farmhouse. And she's driving 45 minutes each way to go to her school where she was a preschool teacher of a Montessori school, not having anything to do with our uh, summit school. So she's just trying to hold down her life and was very much, we were all focused on the school and she was very much just paying the bills and was the breadwinner because my dad was not working. He had his own drinking habit and he did whatever he wanted basically. And um, so I called her. I was like, do you have any recollection? And her only thing that she got to say out loud that she was like, all I remember him saying was Mark turned on me. And I want to say this out loud on this podcast because this is classic narcissistic behavior, classic sociopathic behavior, and getting the lens into Mark's experience being mentored by Medipiade. And for that to be his language, even if they weren't communicating much because they weren't, for that to be kind of the remembrance of her kind of basic memory, I'm sure she'll probably have more memories that flood over the next, you know, several months because that's how our memory works. But to me, it's just so classic Medipiate. Like, oh, really? That's the story? The story is Mark Bailey gets uh, pulled into the police and this 17-year-old, 18-year-old adult mentee of Medipiate is the one to blame for the scenario. Yeah, I, I did turn on him. I, I told the truth and he expected me to keep lying. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. Mark said what happened, saying it out loud, right? And in a public forum, and you spoke about this, was that you learned really well how to keep secrets. And this is so profound because I think this reverberates very loudly in the atmosphere of 3HO Kundalini Yoga atmosphere, keeping secrets about things that we don't even have to keep a secret. There's nothing really to keep a secret from, but it's, it's a form of control. It's a form of controlling a narrative and it's control. It's, it's, maintaining even a false narrative that you might have been embedded as an, as a philosophy of living that we have to do this, but these people can't know about this or these people can't. And it's so deeply subtle, but it forms a, a sense of identity of, of a false power of a false, like one up that I'm doing this. And this person doesn't know. And, and it's, um, I think it's really linked to the manipulation of the will. I mean, you know that the, the first thing that came to mind just then 
was, you know, I was thinking about cotting and, uh, you know, we barely spent any time together. You know, we, we knew each other and there were a couple times when we'd maybe all sit and eat or something like that. Um, but I do remember Merapiare having things that he was hiding from cotting, you know, mostly like if we were going to sit and drink a bunch of beer, he didn't want cotting to find out, you know, so we would have to like pretend like we weren't drunk or, you know, ridiculous stuff like that. Um, well, I mean, you said that was one of the things you said to me is that you and you know, my, my husband at the time that you would go off and do different drugs and that his his thing was make sure I don't know. So right. it was like for me that, you know, the symbolism of that marriage was very much that same secrecy passing on. Right. Whether it was infidelity or whether it was like secret drug use or secret drinking or anything, but just the whole energy of the secrecy has been something I've wrestled with my whole life. And I remember being like 18 and kind of like making a steadfast, like I stand for transparency and I stand for truth and not realizing that my whole nervous system and all of my muscle tissue and all of my psychological training has been around deceit. Right. Has it been high level manipulative subtle body control. So as much as I want to stand for telling the truth, I don't know how I'm a living lie. You know, I'm a living, a, a living and, and to wake up to that, to realize, whoa, I'm just a, a product of my environment. It's kind of what you were saying. It's like, whoa, I just manipulated this person. I should feel good, but I don't because that's a form of manipulation. How come I do that? I don't want to do that. Where did I learn that? Oh, geez. And then you start to look at yourself differently. You start recontexting things like healthy relationship that you thought you've always contexted as healthy. And you realize, well, that's just infused with enmeshment and other predatory um, manipulative practices or ways of being and thinking. I think that your writing speaks to that very well, Mark. So I really encourage listeners to um, to read some of his writing, especially um, just as a trauma survivor, as a sexual abuse survivor, but also just all levels of trauma, whether it's poverty and abandonment to just all levels in which that we go through our life and don't necessarily see ourselves through the lens of a proper mental health diagnosis and the help that sometimes the most disastrous things in our life can bring. And that's not to say that we deserved or called for any of these experiences, but it is to say that when we found ourselves in them, um, it, it, our learning process brought us to a sense of our own mental health awareness that let ourselves look properly. House this properly, name abuse for what it is so that we can look at it properly instead of through the utopian lens um, that often is linked in magical thinking and often using um, spiritual ped pedagogy to uh, legitimize it. So a part of what really bothered me so much about hearing all this story is, is realizing that my father wasn't just a manipulative father, but his teachings, the way he carried on his own teachings in a very 
systematic, manipulative way that's so rooted to 3HO culture that he never um, processed within himself and the impact that that made on you and your life. And maybe countless other lives that we haven't even heard from yet, you know? Yeah. Anything more you want to share here? I think I'm good. I want to really also speak to the sensitive period of time from 15 to 17. And you heard Mark talk about um, the overlap from where he was, you know, being sexually abused from another man in the community where he was living um, until 16. And then from 15 to 17, ended up in summit school for the arts and how, how this happens that as we come from abuse that of our own childhood that we end up in spaces where we become more susceptible um, to other forms of abuse, not just physical, but subtle and psychological and how there's a level of normalcy in lack of boundaries and a level of normalcy and um, in the relationships that are formed that seem so good at the time that only later might we be able to house and see more clearly. And so a part of what this podcast stands for is being able to air things into the light. When we bring our stories out of the dark and into the light, um, they're all, they're not as scary. It doesn't necessarily make it any easier to process, but it's not as scary because we can see it. And I, that again, I want to just appreciate Mark's writings because it really elevated this conversation for me out of the context of just the personal of my relationship and my healing of my father and my family um, to the impact that any teacher or student of why be the predator continues to have on their circle of influence as teachers, as coaches, as shamans, as, as numerologists, as astrologers, as all of the personas of spiritual wisdom that carry on. And I know you've heard me speak of this before, but we're not going to end predator behavior. We have to get better at identifying it and feeling it as it's playing out. And like being an anti-racist, naming it in real time because we're doing our personal work enough to be able to be like, hey, that was really manipulative. Like, what what was that, you know? So for, again, Medi Piatti to, to say out loud, you know, Mark turned on me, this is a young man that gets taken in to the police and he tells the truth. And a ga- form of gaslighting is to then tell the people in your own life, a context that doesn't give the full context of what just took place and your responsibility of the falling of that school or my responsibility as a paid employee of that school. And I, and I know I left that experience with a painted picture from Medi Piatti around why that school got shut down. And it didn't include my accountability for um, having lack of boundaries and doing illegal activity with minors, you know, um, specifically, you know, it's like I didn't run a pot ring, but I was, you know, smoking pot and, and sharing it with Mark so that he could go ahead and distribute it through the town. But, you know, 
these things aren't okay. And yet living in the utopian world that Meripiare had created at that time, there were so many things going on that weren't okay because he lived in a culture of secrecy. And we're hearing now that that was a part of the tenets of the main behavior that was being played out is to keep it a secret. And so as we break the silence and the secrecy that 3HO, the legacy, the 50-year legacy of the secrecy and what it means to see corrupt behavior and not talk about it out loud, to live another 20, 30 years of your life and not talk about things that you've seen, your body remembers that. And so as your consciousness starts to remember it through these stories, you know, be gentle and compassionate with yourself and also be real. Get the support that you need. Speak it out loud and be willing to get honest because this is how we crack our identities and, and see ourselves properly and heal. Mark, your healing came from your willingness to examine your behavior. And, and your life in disruption made you look at yourself differently. You had to take the pause when a final disaster accident happened and it made you just be like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, I mean, it was a, like I fell through a broken outdoor fire escape and fell three stories and landed on my back. And so that kind of like rearranged my body and made it impossible for me to keep living my life the way that I had been. And so that accident um, put me in a position where um, I didn't really have a choice but to move forward. And there was no way to move forward unless I dealt with my shit. And there was no way to deal with my shit except as it came up. And then, you know, and then like for me, it was a combination of the, you know, working AA 12 steps and um, getting connected with real mental health and a good therapist and all that stuff. Um, but it was like not a quick process. It wasn't done in a year, you know, it was like, several years and then the process is ongoing you know even even now I'm still figuring out new stuff yeah you spoke about a decade of of real intentional healing of getting yourself on track and and of and I want to commend you because it is it's still an ongoing process our engagement I know has supported new levels of access of our own healing and that's felt really good um, it's disruptive, and yet it also is good because scar tissue can be like that, right? Something can have healed over, but it didn't really heal. It just kind of healed surfacely, and then there's stuff underneath. And when we get a chance to open up the conversation and turn the light on in the dark in some of these spaces, <clears throat> it supports collective and personal healing. Yeah. Um, well, I, again, I want to thank you for... Um, giving us your lens into your experience um, with <clears throat> who was your mentor, Mary Piare, who happened to be my father. And um, it it's helped me um, see my experience. Um, I had metabolized so much of that. And then to also then see how he carried on in other mentee relationships. I think I was one of that, er, one of those early mentees, you know? Um, so I feel I feel so much of of your writing, and I thank you for the courage that it takes to to share publicly. Yeah, thanks for creating um, space. 
Anything more you want to share in regards to Medipiare, in regards to what it means to um, subtle psychological manipulation and anything else before we wrap up here? Nothing comes to mind. Do you want to introduce uh, our, your song? Oh, Why you chose uh, this song? Can't even remember which one I chose. Okay, well, <laughs> let's uh, let's tell you what the song is. It's uh, La Ciso, La Ciso, La Ciso, Don't Walk Away. Oh, right. How do you say that? La Ciso? La Ciso? La Ciso. I've, I've, I've never heard it said out loud, so I don't even know. Well, the music is La Ciso, Don't Walk Away. Do you want to share why you why you chose this one? Well, these days, I just listened to random things on YouTube, and I ran across this one a few weeks ago, and uh, I love the combination of the melody and the beat, and uh, I just think it's really nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and hear a little bit of this song. And you can listen to the full playlist of the Uncomfortable Conversations um, playlist because we can't play the whole song for copyright reasons, but there's an entire playlist that you can listen to for every episode. Thank you so much, Mark, for um, coming here and sharing your lens of experience. Today, we talked about a former 3HO member who continued to carry on his own persona as a spiritual Sikh wisdom and, you know, influenced um other people, even beyond the context of 3HO and other communities that he continued to um, carry on in his life. And I want to just speak out loud to listeners that this is continuing to happen present day. This isn't going away. And as we see the machine of Kundalini Yoga, 3HO carrying on, or whether it's any other community or appropriated practices that are showing up in spiritual environments um, in which people claim themselves to be you know, special wise people and guiding us to know ourselves more wholly and completely. And yet a lot of that special wisdom is wrapped up within very deep roots of predatory, manipulative, sociopathic and narcissistic behavior. And the more we hear it and see it and name it, the more we can identify it within ourselves and in the places that we find ourselves. Because as Teddy Pendergrass says, you can't hide from yourself because everywhere you go, there you are. And so when we don't process and heal our past and we aren't willing to relook at it, we pass it on. And we, what Resma Menicum describes in his book, Gram My Grandmother's Hands, we blow our pain through other people. And I want to just say in specific and in memory of my father, Mary Piare, Lee Vern Lars Moller, this man 
used whatever persona best served his benefit to get what it is he wanted. And that behavior of using people around you to get what you want is very historically rooted in unprocessed pain of his own. And when he was dying, he said the same thing. So many people hurt me. It wasn't about how many people he hurt. It wasn't about looking at himself clearly. And we all have that choice. We can look at whatever lens we want. Um, but when we've hurt other people and we come from predatory backgrounds and then unconsciously blow that pain in other people, we leave people in the aftermath. And the students of Summit School for the Arts represent that. And Mark is just one of them, but he has had the courage enough to, to be processing his pain and to do the best he can to heal himself and his own past to show up as best as he can in the present. And that's all we can do is the best that we can to speak truth to our lives instead of the lenses and the painted pictures that we were given to rationalize behavior that frankly just were never and won't ever be okay. So that is today's episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you would like to make a donation and support this work, please go to gurunishan.com uh, or forward slash uncomfortable conversations, and it will bring you right to the page where you can donate. Um, if you'd like to share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com and um, send me an email and uh, let's spark up our own conversation and share your story um, on the podcast. Thank you again, listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And I thank you so much for your listening and for your compassionate heart to do this inner work of, of dismantling, dismembering, and remembering clearly. <laughs>